But let's turn our attention now to God's Word. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Hebrews. We have been mostly in Hebrews this summer, and we're getting close to the end. We're in chapter 10 now, uh, looking at verse 19 through 25. So Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Let me, just as a preface before we read, um, tell you that you know, there's a pattern in the book of Hebrews. If you read through it all, you'll kind of feel this pattern, that Jesus is announced as being supreme. That's really the main theme of the book. Jesus is better than anything else. He is supreme. But so oftentimes, the author will then follow that with a warning. If Jesus is supreme, if He's the best thing possible, then why would you ever turn to anything else? Why would you ever leave this supreme Christ? And so this pattern is proclamation of Christ's greatness and then warning not to leave Him. It actually follows uh, a similar pattern in the Bible. We could say that the gospel is always giving comfort to the afflicted. That is true. The gospel gives comfort to the afflicted. But the gospel also can afflict the comfortable. It can shake us and rattle us if we're a little too comfortable. Maybe keep your ears open for that being said to us this morning as we read from God's Word. Hebrews 10, starting at 19, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be at work in our hearts now. Soften us. Open our ears. Open our eyes. We want to see you and know your grace and your mercy. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our hearts and speak through your word so that we might come to know the grace of God and that it might change us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I was not too long ago reading something about weightlifting. I'm sure that's not a surprise to you. Maybe it's a surprise to you that I was just reading about weightlifting. Uh, and one of the things that they made clear in this article that I was reading was the importance of strengthening your grip, your hands and your forearms. And it was really like a whole article on what it meant to strengthen your grip in weightlifting. And they were laying out some of the great reasons that you would go about working on your grip, one of them being that uh, in the mixed martial arts ring, it allows you to grapple much better, especially if you're wrestling, which is probably true, but not all that helpful for me. I don't find myself in the octagon very often. Uh, a second reason was that uh, you want to make sure that your forearms, you know, aren't out of place with the rest of your arms, right? So you want to build up your forearms so that your huge biceps don't make things imbalanced, also not super helpful for me. My biceps have never put me in that kind of conundrum before. 
But the third reason that I actually did think was pretty helpful was that when you strengthen your grip, it actually enables you to work out the rest of your body. This makes sense, right? You can't, uh, you can't do the bench press if you can't hold the bar. You can't do pull-ups if you can't grip it right. You can't you know, hold a kettlebell if you can't hold a kettlebell. And so when you strengthen your grip, it actually enables you to strengthen the rest of your body better. We're getting a similar message, actually, from the book of Hebrews here. The calling to strengthen our grip on Christ enables us, actually, to put all of the rest of the callings of our life into context. When we hold more tightly to Jesus, it enables us to fulfill our callings as parents, wives, employees, employers, servants, brothers, sisters, When we hold more tightly to Jesus, when our grip is strengthened more closely on Him, that's when we actually flourish in all the rest of our life. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, um, you know, my spiritual life actually feels kind of like a dad bod, um, which is, you know, fairly weak, a little fluffy. I talked to to a friend not too long ago that had said, you know, we, we just kind of fell out of the pattern as a family of participating in the worship life of the church. And I fell out of that pattern uh, individually as well. And trying to get back into it was like working out for the first time in a year. Because he said, you know, my spiritual muscles felt like they had atrophied. And so I was sore and it was hard. Maybe some of you feel like that. Like your spiritual muscles have atrophied. <laughs> like your grip on Jesus just isn't tight enough. Well, here's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about kind of the workout plan for strengthening our grip on Christ. And we're going to look at it in three ways. We'll look at that plan, actually what the author of Hebrews lays out for us, the imperatives that he gives us, the things to do in that plan. And then we'll look at why it's so difficult, and then we'll look at the key, okay? So the plan, the difficulty, and then the key to success. First of all, the plan. It's got four parts. If you look back at that passage again and look at verse 22, we say the first words we read are, let us draw near with a true heart. Draw near is the first kind of imperative that we get in this passage. It's the first piece of our workout plan. Now, draw near for us is usually thought about in some sort of physical closeness, but when somebody who was uh, a Jew at this time, which most of the readers of this letter would have been, they would have immediately thought about prayer. The drawing near would have been drawing near to the Lord in prayer. So immediately what we hear is the first step is that we are to draw near in closeness to God in prayer. Now, this is really important, is that the nearness that we have with the Lord, if you belong to Jesus, legally you are as near as you ever can be. You are as near as you can ever be to Jesus because you are united to him by faith. If you are a Christian, you are in union with Christ, and he has brought us near to God. But you can be legally married, and even in physical proximity to one another, sleeping in the same bed, and still be relationally miles apart. If you've ever been in the middle of a fight with your spouse, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What we're being called to here is relational closeness. We're called to draw close to the Lord relationally through prayer. 
I've said this many times before, but this is the beauty of Christianity. God does not say, here's who I am somewhere really far off and you've got to come find me. He doesn't say you've got to take this trip so that you'll have some sort of spiritual, you know, uh, formation in your life and reach some pinnacle, some spiritual pinnacle. That's, that's not the case. God has said, here I am. Here I am in my word, and here's the way that you can talk to me. He's given us prayer as the way that we can communicate with God. We listen to him in his word, and we speak to him in prayer. What a wonderful privilege that is, to be able to come and honestly tell God what we think, what we feel, how we are, what we need, what we would like, to be able to talk to him like he is our loving father, because that's who he is. So there's the first step, draw near to God in prayer. Second kind of piece of the workout plan is hold fast. This is what you hear in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We're told to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Now, our confession is simply really the laying out of what we believe, We've done this sometimes, particularly when we baptize, we participate in a confession of faith where we are saying to one another, this is what I believe. Your confession is what you believe to be true. And a confession really is simply, you know, held within the larger category of theology. Theology is simply the practice of knowing who God is and understanding who he is, who we are, who Jesus is what salvation is, what God desires of us, what it means to live our lives together and to live in the world together. And so our theological understanding is actually really an important piece of what it means to be a Christian. Our orthodoxy, that's right thinking, is important. And you know why it's important? Is because it actually affects our orthopraxy, our right living, our right practice. What you believe is deeply tied to what you practice. Let me give you an example. In the Bible, there is a, long, a line drawn from the Old Testament people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, to the New Testament people of God, the church. The Bible tells us we learn that these are one and the same, that Jesus has actually come to be the king of his people, Israel, and he has gathered us into that kingdom. He has engrafted us in. And so the people of God in the Old Testament, we find out that we are actually bound to them in the New Testament and now. And when Peter is writing uh, a letter in, in 1 Peter, he says, uh, he says, you are a chosen race to Christians. He's linking Christians then with the Old Testament people, God's chosen people, Israel, in the Old Testament. So that race is not a race physically, it's a spiritual race. It's a, it's a being united by faith to God and His people. Now, some people, some theologians, have actually started to draw these lines to different things. In fact, in South Africa in the 1930s and 40s, there were some theologians that began to draw the line from God's chosen people in Israel to the European descendants living in South Africa, the Afrikaners, and saying, okay... We see now God's choosing of these people, and we are the fulfillment then of that choosing. We are the chosen race. That is bad theology. It is straight up wrong. But you know what that bad theology actually led to? 
apartheid. The complex and systemic and deeply sinful practice of segregating races and seeing one, well, if you see your race as being the chosen ones, then everybody else needs to be both separate and lesser. And for many years, millions and millions of non-whites were taken from their homes. They were sent in and, and, uh, and expelled out of the country. They were divided in their schools and in the health care and in every piece of life, and everything was divided. Those same lines have been drawn in other places too. Nazi Germany would be one of them. And you can find that same bad theological system at work here in America today, where we think it's the Americans who have been given that title of God's chosen people, and particularly white Americans, and so everybody else should be either separate or lesser, or both. Friends, that's bad theology being put into bad practice. If we don't hold tight to our confession, bad things happen. When we don't hold tight to our confession, when we don't get our theology right, we end up with deeply sinful practices. So there's the second step in our little workout plan, okay? Hold tight to the confession. Hold tight to orthodoxy. Hold tight to the theology that we know to be true from God's word. Here's a third piece. And now we're moving from more personal to more communal. We're told to encourage one another in verses 24 and 25. Listen how he says it. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Those are actually pretty powerful words. When he says to stir one another up in good works, in English, we're, we're feeling those as, as, as not so powerful. But in Greek, actually, those are words that would like incite riots. In fact, stir people up is the same kind of language you would talk about, about incite, inciting a riot. So the author of Hebrews is saying to the church here, listen, you need to gently implore, but really powerfully implore one another to love and service and good works. The Christian community should always be pointing one another to Jesus. As we walk side by side with each other, we should be walking side by side toward Jesus together. We play a vital role in our discipleship. You play a vital role in mine. You play a vital role in one another's discipleship. Lone Ranger Christianity is not biblical Christianity. We were meant for each other. Your walk with Jesus, as one author says, is a community project. That's the way that it's supposed to be. We are meant to build one another up, to incite one another even to love and service and to following Jesus. And then look at this fourth one. It's embedded in there well, as well, and it's kind of part of it. He says, don't stop meeting together. Get together. Don't stop meeting with each other as some have done so. You can't encourage one another if you're not with one another, right? You can't incite one another to love and good works and service if you're not actually together with one another. And in the context here, he is undoubtedly talking about worship. Worshiping together is a big deal. We live in a time in which worshiping alone is totally possible. Okay, you can go and find much better preachers than me at the, at the the push of a button. 
You can find, this will take a lot more work, but you can actually even find better music than we do. And you can piece together your own perfect, personalized worship service that you can have on your couch by yourself. You can put it all together exactly the way that you want. That is possible. Let me just tell you that what the Bible says is that that's not good for you. What's actually good for us is to be worshiping with a lot of other spiritual dad bods, okay? And to be taught by a spiritual dad bod. And to be doing that together, relying on Christ and moving toward him as we meet together. So don't neglect it. Don't neglect being here. And by the way, we don't, we don't have to be out of here really soon. You can hang around. Talk to one another. Don't neglect worship together. But it should spill out outside of Sunday too. Don't neglect eating in each other's homes. Don't neglect sitting in each other's lawns and talking about how hard it is to be a parent. Don't neglect a double date with a friend. Don't neglect the time that you have with each other because it's important. God has made us for relationships. He has bound us together. When we remove ourselves, it's actually bad for us. So there's our workout plan. It's four steps. It sounds super easy, doesn't it? No, it's really not easy. In fact, if it were easy, uh, we would just kind of close it up right now and say, great, let's pray and go and do it. Be better. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard, actually, to strengthen our grip on Christ. You know, one of the reasons why I think that it's hardest for us, it's hardest for us to, to, to grab a hold and strengthen our grip on Jesus because we're so often holding other things. You can't hold on tightly to one thing if you're already holding on to something else. I can't give you something if you've already got a big box in your hands. And we as a people, as a culture, as humans, we are prone to holding tight to so many other things. I have a, um, a friend, uh, let me just introduce this book to you. It's called uh, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. It's actually back on our book table as well. I, could, I would recommend it to you. It's written by a woman named Ashley Hales. Ashley has a, a PhD in English literature and is a wonderful writer. She's also married to a friend of mine who's a pastor in Southern California. And she's written this book about what it means to grab a hold of Jesus when so many of the things in our lives vie for our attention. The subtitle uh, of this book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, is Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. And really, it's what her book is about. How do you grab tightly to Jesus when there are so many other things that we're holding on to? Now, you know, we can argue all day about whether New Braunfels is a suburb or not, but I think you're going to resonate with some of what she has to say. Let, let, let me just read to you uh, some of the chapter titles. These are the things that she has identified as, uh, as things that we hold on to very tightly outside of Jesus. Listen to these chapters. When your worth is measured in square footage, individualism. Worshiping granite countertops, consumerism. Beyond the gated community, safety. Circling the suburb in my minivan, busyness. Let's just think about that last one for a second. Busyness. It's not something we talk about often. But it is something that is deeply prevalent in our society, isn't it? You know, if you were like just saying hi to your friend 
And you wanted to say, you know, how's it going? But you're going to say it, you know, in a way that's really, you're not asking for a big story. You're kind of just, you want a little response. You are probably going to get one of two responses. If you say, how you doing? How's it going? How are things? Um, Ten years ago, you, you would have gotten one and it would have been really prevalent. It would have been this one. Fine. You know the fine answer, right? How you doing? Fine. Today, that one has probably been overtaken by the second one, which is busy. How you doing? Busy. And busy is like, uh, it's like the best humble brag, right? Because there's this kind of little twinge of lament about that I'm so busy. But really what I'm saying is, I'm busy, so I must be worth something. Busy is like the merit badge now that we wear that says, look, I'm doing stuff, so I've got to be valuable. I'm busy all of the time, so certainly there's something that's valuable about me, right? I'm busy, so I am worthy. Let me talk to, uh, to the moms just for a second, okay, especially moms with young children. Just, just tell me if this rings any bells at all. Wake up at 6, not for the first time but for the last time, because you can't anymore stay in your bed and listen to mom from the other room. So you finally get up, you gather some things together, grab the kids, you throw a couple of Eggos in the toaster and put them in front of the TV so that you can run and jump in the shower and get ready for the day. Well, out of the shower, barely dry, grab all of your stuff and a granola bar for yourself, Grab the kids in one arm, throw them into the SUV, and head off for, uh, for Mother's Day Out where you're going to drop the three-year-old at 7.30. And then, of course, you've got to peel out of that parking lot to get the nine-year-old to school by the time that the bell rings. And after you drop off the nine-year-old, you've got about a 45-minute window to head to the grocery store to get some of the things that you need for the week, and particularly the things for the nice dinner that you're going to make for everybody tonight. Peel through the grocery store with two kids in tow, hoping that everybody, you know, isn't asking the manager to get you out of there, and also carrying, you know, in your basket a pretty decent amount of guilt for the egos and the television this morning. And so you pile the two, you know, big bags of groceries into the SUV and head out to the gym, hoping to make the Pilates class at 9. You get there about 9, 10, but it's okay. You kind of work your way in after, you know, wrangling the kids into the nursery and get your Pilates done, even though you've barely broken a sweat, but it's all right because you've been sweating the whole time. You check out your kid from the nursery and check out the other kids there that has a bite mark on his arm that looks a lot like your children's teeth and say your apologies and then head out as fast as you can uh, to meet the plumber at your house who is there to tell you that you may have to get a new toilet because he's not sure if he can get an entire diaper out of this toilet. And, of course, your kids are still in the car with it running, watching a movie. The groceries are still in the back, of course, kind of warming uh, over the day. Uh, And so you jump back in the car. You've got somewhere else to be, so you pull through the McDonald's parking lot, throw some Happy Meals back in the back, and you're on your way to go to the library for story time at 1 for the 5-year-old. Everybody's happy five-year-old's there enjoying story time. Of course, a three-year-old is screaming and driving everybody crazy. Uh, you've made it just in time then to go pick up the baby uh, from Mother's Day out. And then also maybe to get the other kid to karate so that you can get over to pick up your son from school and get him to soccer practice. Just in time to come back and pick up from karate, in which you'll case you'll have to go back and pick up from soccer practice. And then you've got to stop and get gas, even though you got gas yesterday. And you notice while you're getting gas that the groceries are still in the back of the SUV. Pull in home, 
it's just about time for dinner, unload all the groceries, and throw a frozen pizza in the oven because, I mean, what were you thinking, thinking miso salmon and quinoa for your kids anyway? So those just go straight into the, into the refrigerator. And you, uh, you, you jump in the shower, get out in time to welcome the babysitter, to come in and take care of your kids, kiss your husband, get in the car, and drive to uh, the fundraising event where all your friends are there smiling and say, uh, how you doing? In which you respond, busy. Ring any bells? Sound familiar at all? Part of that's just being a mom. But part of it is the monster that we have created in our society that has begun to just take control. I mean, we live in a world where our work is typically knowledge-based. That's the culture we live in now. And in a knowledge-based society, it's actually really hard to know if you've done a job, to know if you've actually finished something, to actually have that approval that says, job well done. I mean, if you're a farmer, you plant seeds, you water them, they grow, you harvest them, done. If you're a furniture maker, you cut the wood, you put it together, the table is there, you finish it, done, it's finished. But if you're a knowledge worker, when do you ever know if you're finished or not? And so what we've said is, well, the way that we're going to feel good about ourselves is that we'll just work all the time. We'll just keep it going forever. Whether that's always checking your email or always endlessly signing your kids up for activities that you know they'll never be able to accomplish all of them, we keep ourselves busy like crazy, don't we? It is the thing that makes us feel like we're worthy and valuable. But man, don't you long for rest? Don't you long for somebody to say, you don't have to do anymore? I got it taken care of. I've done it. You're okay even if you're not doing everything all the time. Don't we long for that? We are busy people. And if we're holding that tightly to our busyness, how can we hold tightly to Jesus? All right, so what's the key? How do we change these things? Well, here's the beauty of God's word, is that we are never given an imperative what to do unless we are also given an indicative what is true. And we're given that in this passage right here. Listen to the way that we hear things starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Isn't it great how he starts things? Not in order that you might have confidence, draw near, hold fast, get together. No, it's not what he says, is it? Since... You have this confidence. Now here's how you can act. Since Jesus has done all of these things for you, now here's how to respond to that call. See, we oftentimes think of holding on to Jesus like it's holding on to a rope. And if, if we let go, well, we're going to fall. But that's not the way that the Bible lays it out. The Bible actually does call us to hold on tightly to Christ, but it's more like this, is that we're called to hold on here because we know that he's got us here. So when our grip gets weak, his grip does not change. His grip never loosens on us. And though we are given these warnings to not leave and to hold fast and to draw near and to get together and to encourage one another, we do so knowing that Jesus actually holds us tight. 
We have been given both uh, full access and full assurance and full advocacy here. Listen, even the way that he talks about what Jesus has done for us. He says that we have been given access to the Father. That's part of the confidence we have. Through his blood, the curtain he's talking about here is the curtain of the temple that would actually stand between the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And that room was the only place, uh, it was the place that only the high priest could go and only once a year. The high priest would come and he would offer sacrifice for the people once a year. And it was a frightening process to come and stand before the Lord's glory in that way. They would tie a rope to him just in case he died so that they could pull him out of there. Do you remember what happened in Matthew 27 when Jesus died? The earth shook and what tore? That curtain from top to bottom was torn. Just as Jesus' body was torn on the cross, just as Jesus even was ripped from his father in his death, that curtain that separates us from God was also ripped in half so that we might have access by his blood. That's what we read here, is that Jesus has given us access to the Father. We are united to Christ, and he has brought us near to God. If you belong to Jesus, his blood has actually made a way for you to draw near to Christ. But it gets even better, because uh, as we continue to read uh, of this beauty, we not only access, but there's advocacy, right? He continues to talk about Jesus as our high priest, the one who pleads our case, the one who stands before God and says, you know what, instead of taking this person's really weak uh, and, 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 and terrible life and their weak grip and their kind of dad bod spirituality, why don't you take mine? How about my perfect record? How about my substitutionary death? How about me instead? That's what Jesus does for us. He brings us close to God. He advocates for us. And we read in here that what that gives us is confidence. Confidence. See, we are called to move to Jesus. We are called to move toward the Lord. We are called to take, take steps toward him, to hold fast, to draw near. But we are called to do so out of the confidence of what Jesus has done for us. Confidence changes us. <laughs> confidence allows you to say no to things. Confidence allows you the freedom to engage, to follow, to hold fast to a confession that quite honestly doesn't usually match with the culture that we live in. I worked in the summer of 1996 at this camp that's probably a lot like camps that you guys have been to or worked at or sent your kids to. And like a lot of these places, they had a high ropes course, you know, the kind of thing where you would do a lot of you know, work 30, 40 feet off the ground. It's supposed to frighten you to death, and it does. And one of the elements of this ropes course at this camp was called the dangle do. And, uh, and it, was, it was really, see if you can picture it, it was two kind of, you know, long cables coming down about 30 or 40 feet from the ground, and attached to those cables horizontally uh, were uh, telephone poles. So it's kind of like a big rope ladder hanging from the sky 30 feet up. Except one of the unique things about this is that the rungs between the, you know, the, in the ladder, they would actually increase the higher you got up. So when you were kind of down on the ground, you could actually climb up these things pretty easily. 
But once you got 25, 30 feet up, when you were close to the top, the, the distance between one of those telephone poles and the next one was actually about eight feet. So 30 feet in the air, and this thing is swaying and dangling, you've actually got to stand on this telepole, telephone pole and jump to the next one and grab it and climb yourself up. It is a deeply frightening experience. Now, it's deeply frightening until you remember a couple of really key things. There's a harness on me. There's a rope attached to that harness. There's a guy at the bottom who knows what he's doing that's holding that rope. And I'm not going to fall. I have confidence, not in what I'm doing, because my ability to jump from one pole to another pole who's swaying in the air 30, 40 feet above the ground is low. Okay? My ability is low. But my confidence can be high because of someone else's ability. That's what we're told in this passage, is that what Jesus has done for us gives us the confidence to engage him freely, to move toward him in prayer, to move toward him in worship, to move toward one another in love and service and in community. So I just want to close with this question for you. If your confidence in Christ and his work were higher, how would it change your prayer life? If your confidence in Jesus and his work for you were higher, how would it change your worship life? If your confidence in Jesus' work were higher, how would it change your community life? How would it change your busyness? How would it change your family? I'm going to pray for us and then let you think about that question for a few minutes. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for even the parts of your word that push against us, the places, Lord, that those of us who have become too comfortable can actually be properly, appropriately afflicted. And Lord, we are thankful as well for the comfort that comes right on the backside of that affliction, that we get to hear that you have actually done what we can't that we get to hear that you are the one who's actually been busy at work on our behalf, that you have drawn near to us even when we don't draw near to you, that you have brought us together and that you have held us fast. Father, we pray that that confidence in your work would give us freedom, that we might engage you more fully in all that we do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.